You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. know if you guys know this, you probably don't, but I'm going to let you know. Um, over the last couple of years, I've discovered that I have a very specific taste when it comes to TV shows. Um, I mean, in general, you know, I'm, I'm pretty open about most shows, dramas, comedies, you know, whatnot, but I don't know, to, I don't know what it is, but I really, really like crime shows. I love crime shows and I love legal dramas. Like, I, I've learned that I developed this flavor for it, right? And so I don't know what it is, but like, just give me some of like the old school classics, like Law and Order, a little CSI, you know, give me a little bit of Closer, any of these like, you know, dramas, these crime shows, these legal shows, and it makes me so happy. I, I really enjoy trying to figure out like, who did it? Who did it, right? And I want to know how they did it. And, I'm, and you know what, let me tell you, um, I don't mean to brag, but I'm pretty good at figuring it out. You know, I'm, I'm really good at it. And there are many times that midway through watching the show, I'll shout to my husband, honey, it's that neighbor. Look at his face. And you know what? Like, he looks all innocent. He all looks like he looks nice and unassuming. He's so the killer. And then sure enough, nine times out of ten, I'm right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my husband, he says that I would, I would have made an incredible... Um, FBI profiler. I mean, I don't know if he's saying that to be nice or, you know, because I, had, I just have like, you know, this incredible raw natural ability. I don't know. Or, or maybe it could be that these shows are just getting really predictable. I'm not sure which one it is. But in today's passage in John, John chapter 8, we come across a very interesting and very unusual courtroom scene. It doesn't look like the typical one you might see on TV or in a courtroom nowadays, but there is a judge, there is a prosecutor, and there is a defendant. Now, let me give you a little bit of background of what's going on in this passage, because it's a short passage that we just read. As we heard a couple weeks ago with Pastor James, we learned about how during the Feast of Booths, or another name for that was the Feast of Tabernacles, which is like this week-long big celebration, right, holiday, it was during that time that many people were pretty divided about how they felt about Jesus, including his own brothers. They weren't sure what they thought about him. And the religious leaders were feeling more and more threatened by Jesus. They didn't like his influence over the people or his teachings in the temple. And they definitely didn't appreciate Jesus' references to his relationship with God. How his teaching and his authority was from God. Jesus spoke a little too personally about God. That really bothered them. They didn't like that at all. But there were many who wondered is Jesus really the Christ? Is he the Messiah that has been prophesied about for hundreds and even thousands of years ago? Like, could it be? Is it him? The anointed king who was to come and save Israel and rule? Is, is this the guy that we've been waiting for? Like, these people, they were amazed by Jesus' bold teaching. 
They were amazed by the miraculous signs he was performing. They were touched by his compassion and care for the downtrodden and the marginalized. They'd never met a man like him before. But the chief priests and the Pharisees, they did not like how the people seemed to be turning away from their traditional teachings and authority. And instead, they seemed to be drawn towards and following Jesus. They didn't like that at all. And as a result, they were looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus. They were looking for an opportunity to catch him. Somehow they want to catch him. But how? How are they going to do it, right? How can they do it in a way that's, you know, legal, right? What could they do when he was so popular among the common people? So let me set the scene. It was early in the morning, and Jesus was once again teaching in the temple. People were gathering around him, listening, really wanting to hear what he had to say. When all of a sudden, the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman. They dragged her in. She had been caught committing adultery. And they demanded justice from Jesus. In verse 4, they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, this question wasn't as simple or as clear as it seemed on the surface. In fact, it was a trick question. Everyone knew that the law stated that if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, they both deserve death. That was, that was common knowledge. That was in the law. So that's not exactly the tricky part of the question. There was something very suspicious going on here because these leaders only brought the woman forward for adultery. Think about this. This woman cannot commit adultery by herself. I mean, like, it's like physically impossible, you know? She can't commit adultery by herself. Where was the guy if she was caught in the act of adultery? Then where was the guy? right? Why wasn't he brought forward as well? So what's really going on here? What's really the situation here? But if we read a little further in verse 6, these religious leaders, it says that they said this to test Jesus so they could bring some sort of charge against him. The real motive reveals itself right there. That's the motive. Now, if that's the case, then are they really committing, are they really committed to finding justice here? Like, did they really care that this woman broke the law? Like, is that, is that why that this is happening right now? Or was the law just an excuse and a tool to be used for their own prejudice against Jesus? Now, they were using this woman and they were using this law to get rid of Jesus, the troublemaker who they saw as a threat to their authority and power. It's kind of like, you know, in CSI, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that show, like it's on reruns all the time, but like, you know, in CSI, you know, like when they first examine the scene of the crime, right? And they first see the scene, like there's the victim, there's the weapon, you know, there's blood everywhere, there's a supposed killer, right? And it all seems very obvious what happened. Ah, this person must have shot this person and then they died and, you know, that, that's what must have happened. But as they go deeper and they examine the evidence and they examine the motives, you know, of all the people involved in the case, they find out that things are not always what they first appear. Things don't always seem, things aren't always what they seem. Now at this point, it looks like 
these leaders are going to finally get their way. You know, they've been looking to trap him, right, for a while. They've been looking to arrest Jesus for a while, and it looks like they finally are going to get their way. How on earth is Jesus going to respond? How can he respond without falling into their trap? Because let me explain the trap. Here's the thing. If Jesus advocated for the woman not to be executed, if he was like, hey, 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 everybody, let's not stone her. Come on. You know, like, let's, let's give her a break here. Then those scribes and those Pharisees, they can charge Jesus for teaching the people to break the law. They can say Jesus is a lawbreaker. We can arrest him. But if he agreed that they should execute her, then he would be contradicting his own reputation for being gracious, for being forgiving. And most likely, he may lose a lot of favor among all the common people. So what, do we, what does he do? It comes down to this interesting conundrum. If God is full of love and grace, can he still be holy and just at the same time? Let me say that again. If God is full of love and grace, can he still be holy and just at the same time? God is holy. God is just. God's holiness separates him from everything else in this world. And it makes him distinct. He is absolutely sinless. God is absolutely pure. God is absolutely perfect. There's nobody else like him. His holiness brings awe. It brings wonder. Because there's nothing else on this earth that can come close to God's holiness and his perfection. Now, every person in the Bible who has ever come across God's presence, they can't even look him straight in the face. Like, they can't do it. It's impossible. They can't look straight upon God's holiness and glory. They can't help. Like, if you look at any of the times they meet God's presence, the first thing that they do, the immediate reaction that they have is they all fall to the ground on their faces. It's like, they don't even think about it. It's just like, they fall. Because that's how strong God's glory and his holiness is. Even the angels who attend the throne where God is, they have wings that cover their faces and their feet because even though they are angels, they can't fully face his holiness either. And because God is so holy and because God is just, sin can have no part in him and he cannot leave sin unpunished. He's completely fair and impartial, and he always upholds the law. Like, that's God, right? He's holy. He's just. And yet God is also loving and gracious. That means he's patient. He has this unending patience. He's kind. He has this loving kindness that has, has no, like, you can't even measure it. And he, he's sacrificial in his love for us. He's forgiving, and he keeps no record of wrongs. God is loving and gracious. So then, what's Jesus going to do? What will he do? What will he say? It seems like he's caught between a rock and a hard place. Will he have to sacrifice the holiness and justice of God in order to reinforce the love and grace of God? Or will he lean more towards the holiness and justice of God and make love and grace a little bit more secondary? You know... You know, like, the more I study Jesus, let me tell you, like, he is so smart. 
Like, he is so clever. Really, he really is. And let me show you what he's going to do. So Jesus, rather than answering them straight away or reacting to the charge, he bends down and he simply begins writing on the ground with his finger. What is he doing? What is he writing, right? He just bends down and starts writing on the ground with his finger. Now imagine this scene. Everyone is holding their breath. They're all waiting in anticipation. What is Jesus going to say? How's he going to get out of this one? What's he going to do? And imagine the religious leaders, okay? Maybe they're getting a little frustrated. (sighs) What's he doing? Hurry up and answer the question, right? Maybe they're getting a little frustrated with each second passing. Or maybe they're feeling more confident and smug. (sighs) Yeah, he's... He's procrastinating. Like, I mean, like, look at him. He's not going to be able to answer this question. We got him. We got him, right? Maybe they're thinking like that, right? He can't escape. So they keep asking him. They keep prodding him. They're trying to get a reaction. They're trying to get an answer out of him. So Jesus silently stands up, and he says to them, that Jesus, right? He stands up, and he says, let him who is without sin among you Be the first to throw a stone at her. You know, he drops the mic, right? And so then he once more bends down and he writes on the ground. I have no idea what he's writing on the ground. Like, what is he writing? Was it something important? Was he like illustrating the scene? Like, you know, like drawing caricatures of them? Like, was he taking notes of what was happening? We don't know, and it never says for certain. But whatever the case, what we can know for sure, what we do know is, is that whatever question, whatever trap they tried to throw on Jesus, they can't catch him because he's cool as a cucumber. He just takes it in. And with that one statement that Jesus gives, he changes the entire scenario. Their entire case has just been flipped inside out. How will these religious leaders respond now? What are they going to say? Which leads me to my first point. Be slow to cast judgment. Be slow to cast judgment. We need to first examine our own hearts and motives before we are quick to cast blame or judgment on others. That's a really hard thing to do because it's so much easier to always find fault in other people before we look at it in ourselves. Isn't that true? We need to be slow to cast judgment. Now, when Jesus spoke, he was not saying that the accusers, when he said, like, he who is without sin, be the first to throw, when he said that, he was not saying that the accusers needed to be absolutely sinless, because that's impossible, right? They're humans. He's not saying that. In Deuteronomy 17, the law requires that in cases of stoning, there needs to be at least two witnesses of the sin, okay? So then that means that those two witnesses, out of those two witnesses, these witnesses, they have to be people who have not participated in the act of adultery, in the sin of adultery, and they have to be people who have not been involved in any sort of involvement with this woman's adultery. So they can't have committed adultery, and they can't be involved in this woman's adultery somehow, in any way, okay? So these Pharisees and scribes, who were accusing this woman, and we already know that it was under very shady circumstances, right? It's like already in like a very strange way that they brought it about. Now, these Pharisees and scribes who are accusing this woman, 
not necessarily because of their righteous indignation against sin or because of the good of Israel. I mean, that's not, that's not like the main reason why they're accusing this woman. We know that it was because it was mainly to trap Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, with that question from Jesus, they suddenly found themselves stuck. They were stuck. Because here's the thing. Here's the situation for them now. If they went ahead and they decided to stone the woman anyways, they were claiming before God and before all the others around them that they had not sinned and that they had nothing to do with this setup. That's what they would be saying if they went ahead and stoned, that they, their hands were totally clean of everything in this scenario. But if they did not stone her, they would be admitting that they had sinned in front of everyone. They would be admitting their guilt. So what do they do? On the one hand, it's like, dude, you're a liar. Confess, right? And then on the other hand, it's like, everybody will know you're a liar. You know, like, so what do you do? What do you do? Now, interestingly, with this one statement from Jesus, a chain of convictions began. One by one, each person in that group began to feel the weight, the conviction of their sin. And it is only God's word that brings that conviction. It is God's word that brings that conviction. No amount of pleading, no amount of persuasive words, no amount of being eloquent can, like, you, that can only do so much. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says that God's word is living and active, right? Jesus spoke those words to them. God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Only God's word can do that, right? So as Jesus speaks that statement, the conviction begins in each of the people in that group. And it starts with the older ones. The older ones. Maybe it's because the older ones, like, they had a little more wisdom. Maybe it was their life experience. Maybe life had humbled them enough to admit before the others that, yeah, they had sinned, that they're not perfect, that they were not guilt-free. But whatever the case, they were the first ones to admit that they had sinned. And one by one, all the others followed as well, until there was only Jesus and the woman that were left. Now, I want you to imagine that scene. I think Jesus is still writing on the ground at this point. And the woman is standing there, and she's watching one by one her accusers leaving. What was she thinking at this point? How would she have felt? This was probably the first time that she was in front of Jesus face to face. And you know what? Knowing that she is an adulteress, because no matter how weird and you know, strange the situation in which they brought her forward, she is an adulteress. And she also had no way to defend herself from her sin because she had been caught. She had no excuse. There's no way to get out of it. All she could do was wait for judgment. And it was at this point that Jesus stood up and he says to her in verse 10, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she replies, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus didn't ask her if she was guilty. He didn't say, where's the guy? 
You know, he didn't say, you know, like how many times. He didn't say any of those things. He did not ask her if the accusations were true or not. Because Jesus already knew her sin. He already knew. Which leads me to my second point. Be quick to show grace. Be quick to show grace. You know, despite her guilt, Jesus did not condemn her. He did not throw any stones at her. And instead, he showed her grace. She did nothing to deserve it. There was nothing she could have done to earn it. He just gave it to her. She was already guilty. She was already accused. But he showed her grace anyways. Jesus tells her, don't sin anymore. And he wasn't saying, don't sin anymore, not because you're afraid of being stoned next time, but because you've encountered the amazing love and saving grace of God. Don't sin anymore because you've met me. This grace was not dependent on her changing her behavior or stopping her sin first. Rather, this grace would now be the motivation for her to sin no more. All of us are like this woman in one way or another. We have all been caught openly in our sin, and we stand condemned by God's holy law. There is no way around it. We cannot hide from that at all. We cannot even defend ourselves. But all of us are also like those religious leaders who hid their sin behind self-righteousness and deception only to be uncovered and convicted by God's word. You know, in the book of Hosea, there is this amazing story that I'm sure some of you are familiar with. There's a story where God, he asks the prophet Hosea, to marry a woman named Gomer in order to illustrate his love for Israel, God's love for Israel. And Gomer, she is unfaithful to Hosea. They get married and she is unfaithful to him, not once, not twice, but multiple times. She even has children with other men while married to Hosea, okay? And in her final act of rebellion and unfaithfulness, she runs away to be with one of her lovers and hits rock bottom. And she ends up selling herself as a slave. So it's during this period that God gives this shocking command to Hosea in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. He says to him, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So Hosea went and he bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Now I want you to think about what this means for Hosea. How can he take a wife back who has treated him the way that Gomer has? Hosea, who is probably looked upon as a town fool, because back then everybody knows everybody, right? And they probably all already know about everything that Gomer has done. And they know that she's already left him for another man. And so Hosea, now he needs to go back and get his wife back, right? So he's like already looked upon like a town fool. And he goes and he has to buy his own wife back. And he buys her back at the price of a common slave. And he brings her home. 
Now, when we look at that story, Gomer, she did not get fairness. She did not even get justice. She got grace. She got grace. It's hard for us to understand a God who allows himself to endure such humiliation and rejection over and over again. But you see, that is the heart of the gospel. It is God's deep and immeasurable and scandalous love for you and me and him offering it to us over and over again, even though we do not deserve it, even though we reject him over and over again. Now, as humans, we have a tendency to place our value and our identity in what we do and what our role is and what other people think of us. And when we look at this story of Gomer, as humans, our initial response is, why on earth would he take her back? Kick her to the curb. Why would you take her back? Why, and why would you buy her back? Why would you use your hard-earned money to take her back, right? She doesn't deserve it. Her value doesn't merit this kind of act. We look at Gomer, we look at people like Gomer, broken, messed up, confused, lost, angry, bitter, hopeless people, and we automatically categorize them and identify them as that. We look at them and we go, undeserving, undeserving, undeserving. But that's just it, isn't it? God doesn't, God doesn't redeem us or forgive us or love us because we're lovable or deserving. And as followers of Christ, we're not called to forgive or love others just because they're lovable and deserving. Because they're not. <laughs> Seriously. Like most times, like people, people are terrible. I mean, we're terrible right? None of us are deserving. It is out of the love we've encountered, the grace that we've received, that we in turn must love, that we in turn must forgive. God is holy. He hates sin. That will never change. That is who he is. But God is also loving and gracious and forgiving, and that too will never change, and that is who he is. So what does that mean for us? None of us are that different from that adulterous woman, nor are we that different from those self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. We all have one thing in common. We are sinners who have received an immeasurable and uncountable grace that far exceeds our worth or our deservingness. Because it's a grace that was fully bought and it was fully paid by God himself. Because of God's holiness and justice, he came into this world to pay the price that we could not pay for the sin that separated us from him. And because of God's love and grace, Jesus gave his own life and took our place that we may be set free from the sin and death forever. Now, just as grace was extended to the adulterous woman, as well as to Gomer, Jesus extends that same grace to you and to me today and every day. So let's pray. God, we cannot fathom, we cannot fully understand this love that you have for us. 
We cannot fully comprehend the grace that you give to us. God, I just pray right now for those of us here who are listening as we try to register and just kind of digest everything that's been spoken today. Maybe for some of us here, maybe for some of us here, we have been quick to cast blame on others. We have been quick to look at the fault in other people. And maybe we have been slower to look at the sin that's in us, to look at the ways that we have failed, to look at the ways that we have fallen short. And maybe for others here, there are times when we should have, when we should have showed grace more willingly, more quickly, but we were so reluctant to because they didn't deserve it, because they hurt us. But Lord, I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, would you give us conviction, just like you did for those Pharisees and those scribes. Would you reveal to us in our own hearts, God, are there people that we need to be extending grace to? Maybe we need to extend grace to ourselves, too. Or maybe for some of us here, we haven't even fully been able to receive the grace that you give to us. Maybe that's something that's been really hard for us to do. And so, God, right now, I just pray, Lord, that you would just speak to each and every person in this room. Speak to us, Lord, in the way that we can hear and listen, the way that we can receive it. And so let's just take a few moments right now, just take a few seconds. And however way that you feel that God is just kind of, maybe he's bringing something up in your mind right now. Maybe he's whispering something in your heart right now. I don't know. Whatever it is, I want you to just submit it before the Lord and just take a little time right now and talk with him. Spend some time with him right now.